Welcome to the SLN Podcast, where your hosts interview top industry influencers and break down the latest trends in sports, fitness, fashion, and innovation. The SLN Podcast is on now. This episode of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast is presented by Empirica. That's Empirica, E-M-P-I-R-I-K-A. Empirica exists to amplify your brand's growth. A digital partner to the ambitious, the creative engine launching brands and igniting growth. The unagency where relationships matter, not transactions. Let's connect at EmpiricaMedia.com. That's EmpiricaMedia.com. Let's get the show started. All right. This is Mike Gugat for the SLN podcast. Michael J. Quet, MJ. You're now yeah. a podcaster. Is uh, is this going to give you any cred with uh, with uh, millennials in your life? I hope so. Uh, I have one in the house, so uh, I'll definitely be able to test it with her. But um, yeah, no, this was fun, and and I'm a big consumer of podcasts. So now crossing over and becoming a podcaster um, is a is a nice progression, and and uh, and I'm really excited about it. And, and uh and and looking forward to this coming out and 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 people being able to check it out great well before we get to your interview with rob d martin i think you're an example of of when we talk about a network that we're trying to establish with the sport lifestyle network we were introduced to you by a friend of the network andy zipfell and uh and that's how we came to, to having this conversation yeah, no, I've, I'm. Um, it, it's been uh, a, a great first introduction, and and um, I'm, again, I'm a big believer in the genre. Um, so I think this is this is great content. Um, and the NGB community um, that I come from and, and that I've worked within uh, certainly uh, has uh, really really great stories, both on the business side and on the athlete side, obviously, and. And uh, we get to hear some of those stories from Rob. And Rob comes from like a really different background in the NGB community um, from P&G and from New Balance. So he is unique within the uniqueness of the NGB community. So I think that's pretty special too. Well, that's why we wanted you to have the conversation with Rob. Certainly Rob was an attractive guest to the network, given his background at New Balance, uh, you know, as, as a very successful leader there for, for many, many years. Uh, but your background is, is what uniquely qualifies you to have that interview. And it hasn't just been with the NGB community. You, you've had a long career in partnership marketing. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it's evolved? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always been on the revenue side in my career. Um, and I've never sold anything that's easy to sell. So uh, that has really formulated much of my career and much of my opportunities where people have something that, uh, and it's usually been a startup. So that's, you know, takes another degree of, of fun and passion and into it. But um, yeah, like I have had a, a really long and successful history um but you know around the ski and snowboard community and that is what got me into becoming the chief marketing officer of, of u.s ski and snowboard and um and it's been you know other stops along the way of uh, have been cbs sports and college sports television and trans world media and you know times mirror and time inc so i've worked for big companies and small companies startups and and the Tiffany network at CBS. So uh, I have a big kind of background um, uh, that's pretty varied and, and 
and so did Rob. So, you know, we both kind of got into the NGB community uh, non-traditionally. We were called non-traditional choices um, when we were hired. And uh, I take that as a big positive for sure. I think it's a compliment and I'm a big believer that you, you bet against your rational behavior. And I think that's the conversation uh, you're, you're going to have with Rob. And, and one thing I, I, you know, just in kind of forecasting for listeners, the subject that you get into is it's, you can no longer just slap on something and, and, you know, have it be mutually uh, beneficial. Can you talk just a little bit about the conversation you had with Rob and, and some of those uh, things that USA client or USA cycling is looking to do uh, differently? Yeah, look, we are in this era where, you know, sponsorships have to break through and, and the brand alignment has to break through. Um, and we live in, you know, in the sports world, we live in, uh, we live in a world where, there's the NFL and the NBA, and then there's everything else. So, um, you know, you have to use non-traditional means um, to, to really break through with, with sponsors. And that's certainly what USA Cycling is and was facing, um, is, is really trying to do the same thing year after year after year and expecting different results. We all know that's the definition of insanity. So Rob came in with not only a fresh face and outlook and history. Um, but he also wanted to shore up the business, obviously, but then just try anything, right? And be quick. And if he's going to fail, fail fast. Um, and, and this is why, you know, we're pretty kindred spirits is that that's what I've always believed throughout my career. But certainly when I was at the chief marketing officer of US Ski and Snowboard, uh, you know, again, we had to make some big changes. Um, we had to take some huge swings. Um, and we took big swings and, you know, we did a big air competition in the middle of Fenway Park. Um, we hosted the 2015 Alpine World Championships, which was a massive endeavor. Um, so, you know, we took some big swings and, and Rob knows that and we've talked about that. And he's looking to take some similar big swings as well. Um, and one of his biggest ones is really trying to capture the entire cycling market with USA Cycling memberships. Um, and that's a huge, huge swing um, because as you'll hear him say in the podcast, um, the image of USA Cycling has not been the best one within the cycling community. So if you don't even capture the cycling community, uh, much less trying to break through the general sports community, you've got a big problem. So Rob knows that. And, and uh, in his little over a year on the job, he's made some great strides there and some really cool things to come. Well, I don't think there were two better people to have the conversation. So we appreciate you, MJ, having the conversation with Rob D. Martini. So why don't we, uh, without further ado, get to that conversation. Rob, great to speak to you today. And uh, thanks for joining us, of course. Um, we're going to focus a lot on the national governing body space, NGBs, as they're, as they're known. Um, and you're really an outlier um, in this community meaning that much of NGB leadership around uh, comes either from the sport. A lot of ex-athletes actually have, have ascended to the leadership position at a lot of national governing bodies. Uh, you come from the business sector, and I think that is pretty unique, and that's what I really want to focus on today. Um, and so really the, the first question is, you know, the path that led you eventually to coming over to USA Cycling, again, a non-traditional one in the, in the space, um, but you know, what did you see about USA Cycling from your background um, at P&G 
uh, and then later at New Balance. What did you see there that was opportunity for you or opportunity for the organization? And I, I guess probably a combination of both, right? Yeah, I think it was a combination of both, MJ. I think, um, you know, having spent my whole career building brands and building communities, um, I saw, uh, first of all, you know, a lot of times I think they're run by athletes because there's a lot of detailed, uh, complex issues inside a governing body that that background certainly helps you uh, navigate those issues better. And I have to rely on others because I just don't have that. But I do, I do have experience building communities. And I saw an organization that um, was doing a very good job in a relatively narrow lane of the sport. And, you know, racers are maybe 5% of all cyclists. Um, and, you know, we uh, were in the business of taking care of racers and getting them to events and giving them authority to, to develop. But we were missing the other 95% of the market. And, you know, I'm hoping to rebuild a community that still services racers well, but invites in casual weekend warriors, because that's like most athletic endeavors, the, the market's much bigger in the, in the fans and the casual competitors versus the you know, top performance competitors. And so I saw a real opportunity there. They called and said, look, do you want to try something different? That was the other thing after you know, 35 years of a traditional career and, and 12 years uh, running New Balance. I wanted to try something different, but I loved the sport experience that that New Balance work had given me. So I wanted it to be something that I had passion for. And that's, you know, again, a big difference here between going from New Balance into USA Cycling um, is really access to resources, right? I think that's the big misconception also in the NGB community um, is that, uh, you know, these are big businesses or, or these are, you know, big organizations. Um, the reality is these are all nonprofits. Um, and, and certainly compared to New Balance and, and P&G, um, access to resources and budgets uh, is, is really a challenge. So, you know, how do you address that? And, and, and how's that, how much of a kind of change has that been for you in your day-to-day -day life? It is a big change. We're, we're like many NGBs, we're significantly underfunded. Uh, I think a lot of Americans think that the Olympic team's funded by the government, and it's not. Uh, it's mostly funded by a combination of committed sponsors who have passion for the space and the consumers, and then private foundation-type fundraising, as well as, in our case, we sell memberships but we were selling them to that 5% of the market. So that part is different. I will tell you there's an offsetting positive to having really poor kind of resource availability. And that's everybody who's here is here by choice. It's a passion driven industry. Many of them grew up in it, have history, have background, and it's what they do. So, you know, I think I'd like to have resources and passion. I think if you gave me a choice, I'll take passion over resource. And if I can get the mix right, we can get accomplished what we need to do. No, that's a great point. Um, that's totally true uh, that everybody's Everybody's in this Olympic movement um, for the right reasons, uh, which is great. Nobody's um, punching a ticket and looking at their watch and thinking when five o'clock's coming. And, and again, a lot of companies have people that have passion for the initiative, but this is, this is unique in that front. Yep. So you've been there about a little over a year or so. Um, you know, when you walked in the door, uh, again, we talked real quickly about how you saw some opportunity and, and you always want to take a job that you feel like you can make a difference and you can help, right? So um, from when you walked in the door to, to you know, now, sometime later, 
um, you know, what was your biggest, I guess, misconception or what did you feel that was more important that might not have been important? And then vice versa, you know, what did you not realize that all of a sudden became really important to the mission there? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll almost tie your first two questions together that, that when I came in, I knew it would be hard to make the shift. We were really dug in at doing what we did. Uh, and whether that's you know appropriate for the future or not, I'm not making any comment there yet. It's just with an under-resourced organization, you know, I had these ideas and I was kind of parading them in front of my leadership team. And you know, in fairness to them, they're saying great, but I got to put on 19 national championships. I got to you know support 2,500 cycling events in this country. When do you expect me to do this? And in some ways, the pandemic was a real gift because we took a massive revenue hit. We're down 50, almost 50% year on year. We canceled 19 national championships and we've canceled 85% of the 2,500 events we put on. But the flip side is that time I was looking for, it became available. Yeah. And all of a sudden our core business wasn't a business anymore. And so we, in the last four months, we've made more progress than we made in the first 12 because, you know, you never want to waste a good crisis. And we had a big crisis. And so it forced the team to really think differently. And it's led us to a number of things that I hope we get a chance to talk about that were there. I mean, I, I thought about them a year ago, but I just couldn't find the bandwidth to, you know, get them, get them done. Yeah, we will talk about some of those initiatives. Um, but, you know, first, yeah, you know, this is uh uh, unbelievable circumstances that we're, that we're all in. Um, but in my observations of, of, you know, being at the national governing body that I was U.S. Ski and Snowboard, but also working with you and, and working with USA Skateboarding, it is such a push and pull on being able to keep the lights on and keep going and really finding opportunity and just time to look at the future. So, you know, if we look at the landscape right now for national governing bodies, especially summer, we've got LA 28 out there. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful opportunity um, for, for everybody in America involved in the Olympic movement. Um, but we've got, uh, you know, tomorrow and we've got Tokyo this summer. Um, you know, so, so on a, you know, what's your push and pull there? How do you react to it? Um, any tips on, on how you're able to kind of pull yourself out of the weeds from a, from a leadership standpoint and, and, uh, and keep an eye on, on the future, but um, deal with today? Well, I, you know, I, the proof will be in the pudding, so I haven't really yeah. produced any results yet. But, but I do think that not being familiar with and experienced in a lot of the details is actually a help for me because, um, you know, I sat back when I first got here and I looked at the size of the different NGBs and, and then I looked at the size of the sport. And, you know, in some ways we have just this massive opportunity because cycling is one of the, I'll call it the mid-sized NGBs, mm -hmm. but, but from a sport participation, we have one of the biggest sports out there. And in some ways, one that is super approachable. I don't think the sport itself has done a great job on approachability. And I think we've We've amplified some of the things that make it hard, but as far as just kids riding bikes, you know, this is not, I don't have to figure out how to get balance beams to everybody's backyard. This is something that's yeah. already in their garage. So it's harnessing that, that we have to figure out how to do. And, and I went back and I looked at 
the top performing summer NGBs as a percent to total of winning medals. And, uh, you know, track and field wins about 35% of the contested medals and swimming wins 50. That's the highest benchmark I could find. And in Rio, we did our best ever and we won five medals and that was 16% of what was contested. Mm -hmm. So Jim Miller and I sat down and said, what, what's possible? You know, can we get to 50 by the time we get to LA? I don't know, but I think it's a lot worth, it's, it's a lot more fun aiming at that than trying to win six uh, and yeah. get one medal better. So we've set long range plans for Tokyo, uh, which obviously is not long range, but Tokyo, Paris and LA. And I want to see what, you know, why can't America win 35 to 50% of the contested cycling medals? We need a different development engine uh, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, we got much smaller, Northern European countries that beat the tar out of us. And I don't think their athletes are better. I just think that they've figured out how to find their talent better than we have. And that's the opportunity we're trying to get after. Yeah. And that's interesting, right? Because, um, you know, you've got some NGBs that are completely metal focused and unapologetic about it. You've got others that, you know, are kind of less enthusiastic about it so um, there's obviously positives and negatives to, to throwing a, a metal focus out there um, I'm of the camp that that's a positive thing and I would imagine but you know I want you to answer um, I would imagine that throwing out metal goals then all of a sudden um, the questions of how you're going to get there start to dictate the focus and start to dictate the programming and where you're going to do resource allocation is that right it, it does exactly. But I think, um, you know, the real tyranny of turning that into an or question, it's not an or, yeah. it's an and. I mean, cycling actually has the imbalance where what I really need is youth programs and, and even non-competitive programs, just getting kids on bikes is the most important step. And I think, you know, when I look at swimming and I see how well they've done, I see a couple of things that you reflect upon. One is it's a sport, you know, maybe like you saw in skiing where athletes can win multiple medals. Yep. And, and I think that's a plus because when you get a Chloe Diger, you know, you can say, Hey, she's certainly capable of meddling in multiple disciplines. Um, the flip side. So we have that in common with swimming The what we don't have today is the infrastructure that they have where, you know, certainly there's some socioeconomic issues, but by and large, almost every kid in this country or many kids, I should say, if they want to start, you know, they start swimming when you take them to the local pool and throw them in and give them swimming lessons. And there's a very available infrastructure for kids that either like it or are good at it or both to continue to advance. Cycling doesn't have that. Almost all of our top athletes come from another sport and they've either skilled out or they've burned out or they've injured out. And then they have a family member or a close friend who says, hey, you got a big engine. Why don't you get on a bike? Well, that's a great way in, but it's not very democratic. It's not getting to kids who don't have that path. And that's what we got to build. Yeah. They come from skiing. A few of them have. <laughs> a lot of them from skiing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's interesting. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to kind of transition a little bit more into the, into the commercial side here. Um, you know, again, a lot of misperceptions, misconceptions about the NGB space that this is, you know, entirely just an organization 
that's supposed to put a national team together and then eventually an Olympic team and, and just manage that. Right. And, and it, you really need to, you know, it's not only the mandate um, to do this um, being the NGB of your sport, um, but it obviously helps in sport development of well, as well, this idea that you put your arms around the entire sport and you're in charge of never evers and participation and then fostering them through the sport um, all the way to the top if they make it, and that's great. But if they don't, and this is what I think is something really unique to USA Cycling that I like, um, is the strong, strong master's participation um, and, and the strong participation amongst people that have never been to the Olympics, never sniffed that level of competition, um, but are just passionate about riding, not just riding their bike, but racing it, um, which, is a, which is a big difference um, in, in a level of commitment and passion um, uh, that is really unique to USA Cycling. And that, that's something that I think is, is, is not shared by a lot of other NGBs. I know it's not. The, the concept that there would be someone that believes that they're every bit of part of USA Cycling and their mission um, and they're every bit as passionate about riding and racing their bike as a 60 year old, as a bunch of kids that you have in the four, you know, U14, U16, and even the Chloe Digerts of the world. Yep. You know, I, I think that that's dead on MJ, what we're trying to get done. And it is where 30 plus years of commercial background helps me. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, nobody wakes up and goes and wins a bike race. There's so many steps on the, on the consumer or in our case, member journey that have to happen before that. And like every top competitive sport, most people aren't going to get there. That's okay. That's not failure. That's not uh, a system that's broken. I want to get more kids riding, more cyclists participating and I'm convinced that we'll get our performance engine uh, to perform, you know, we'll get better performance because we'll have more talent to draw from. I mean, you know, America's are, American citizens are super competitive and, and they'll find their own level, but I just need more in it. I mean, I think there's a lot of kids, they don't even know cycling's a sport. They think it's yeah. what they ride to get to their sport. Uh, and I think that's fine, but we ought to let them know there's a path here. So you know, we've come up uh, and my organization gets mad at me when I say this, but you know, what I, what I saw when I got here is we were the department of motor vehicles of cycling. Yeah. You came to us to get a license. It was probably going to be a horrendous consumer experience and you just wanted to put off doing it again as long as you could. Um, but you know, racers are a very small subset of cyclists and racing is a short portion of a cyclist's life. So we've done everything we can to make the market as small as possible. We're going to turn that on its head. We've got a new mission called We Champion Cycling, and it's about getting more people in. Youth programs at the bottom, participation, encouragement in the middle, and then a good Olympic development engine that will find the talent and develop it uh, into, you know, this year at the Tour de France, I got two kinds of messages. How cool to see Sepp Kuss and Nielsen Paulus do as well as they did. And why aren't there more Americans? And those are both legitimate points. And there aren't more Americans because we don't have enough people in the pipeline. But the athletic capability is in this country. And if we can put more kids on bikes, those, those Sepps and, and Chloe's and, and uh, Nielsen's will just rise to the top. 
And then we'll do our best to take good care of them and shepherd them to whatever it is their level they're going to reach is. And it's not like America hasn't produced its fair share of, of champions in this sport. So, you know, you got history there too. Um, when I hear you talk about membership um, and, and getting more people involved and getting them more committed, uh, I also hear probably some of your P&G features and benefits backgrounds, right? And, and, yep. uh, and, and how, do you, how you craft and market a, a product. Um, uh, obviously, uh, getting someone to sign up for, a, for a, be a member of USA Cycling is much different than having them walk down a grocery aisle and, and, and buy, you know, a snack product or Tide or what have you, right? Um, so, so fundamentally, you know, out a little lay, uh, lever behind um, uh, uh, what the value proposition to the uh, to the customer is. Give me some of like the thought processes of how you wanted to package differently and, and how you wanted to kind of present this differently because because membership in in USA Cycling's organization um, ha, has has been relative flatline and yep. and you're trying to go like this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what are some of the tactical things that you've, that you've done, um, and, and, you know, with pricing and packaging and the value proposition and, and all these things? Uh, I mean, MJ, you're exactly right. I mean, just rough numbers, you know, racing, active racing membership has been around 75,000 to a hundred thousand for the last decade. And historically the organization has done a pretty good job of kind of keeping that number flat, but it's mm -hmm. not growing. Yeah. And the sport is growing. And the reason it's growing, you know, there's lots of factors. One is there's new segments that kind of operate outside of USA Cycling, gravel, things like that. There's also people who, uh, you know, historically our strength was in road racing. We were less developed in mountain biking. You know, today we're working with NICA and other organizations like that that are doing fantastic things for kids on bikes. But so 175 to 100,000 racers, 7 million active cyclists, okay. you know, so it's just like, That's you got to reach, right? Absolutely. And, and if I can get a 15 share and we get a million members, then, you know, so, so number one, historically, we were selling a transactional document. We were selling you a license mm -hmm. and, and I don't want that. I want to sell you, I want to convince you to be a member and then if you want to upgrade and buy, spend another 50 bucks to get a racing license, great. That's, you know, we put out officials. We, we do a lot to support the racing community, but you don't need to race to be a member. Historically, you did. And that's why that subset was such a small target. Um, there are a lot of people in my coffee shop that are competitive as hell, but they don't race. And so I want them to be a mission-driven membership, uh, you know, member. And so we're going to sell them a basic license for $50 and they're going to know that their money goes to getting kids on bikes and getting Americans to the Tour de France and everything in between. So I think we've got to serve up a better product. There's individual benefits. You get discounts on stuff, but I don't really, I don't want that to be the reason people join. I want them to yeah. join because they believe in the mission. The other thing we've got to do is be absolutely transparent with our revenue. I want you as a member to see every dollar we took in and where every dollar went because, you know, you're the boss. If you're the member, you're in charge of what we do and you should have a say in that. There'll always be little disagreements, but we need to be much more transparent than we were in the past. That's great. And so now, um, you know, 
uh, a nice convergence here, right? Of of what you're trying to do to change the organization and and the and the, the membership focus and the community focus, combined with a huge influx of the community itself. Um, so bike sales were up over 120% in May, and that kept in June. And 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 you know the statistics of people buying bikes for the first time or upgrading their bike. I mean, it's all through the roof, right? Unbelievable moment that we've had in COVID here um, with, with people buying new bikes. Um, and, and then also, in addition to the bikes, you've got this huge community of connected fitness products mm -hmm. like the Pelotons of the world. You've got people engaging with Strava. Um, so you, you've got these new tools at your disposal as well. Can USA Cycling wrap its arms around all of that? Can, can USA Cycling be the community for, for someone on a Peloton, someone, someone on a Strava ride, um, and, and someone that's, that's decided to pick up um, a bike, no matter what type of bike it is, um, you know, maybe not for the first, first time ever, like we'll give them a couple of years. Right. But certainly someone that's, you know, re-engaging, um, in the sport as, as a transportation or fitness vehicle or both. Um, you know, how do you wrap your arms around all those people? Well, that, that's where this, we champion cycling mission has come in is that, that, you know, we needed to think bigger. We needed to serve, we need to serve a much broader audience. Uh, again, because I think I said this, nobody wakes up and goes to a bike race. You yeah. know, they, there's a whole path there and we need to bring them in much earlier. So, um, you know, we've got a number of programs that we're kicking off next year that we've never done before. We've got a program called Let's Ride and they are free camps put on by our 1200 coaches across the country. And they're not race oriented at all. They're about basic skills, basic safety, basic etiquette for young kids, just get them into a parking lot, get them riding around some cones, have it be delivered by somebody in red, white, and blue. You know, you, we were talking about my consumer background. I, I've sold a lot of stuff. Yeah. Shoes, toilet paper, toothpaste, coffee. I've never had a logo as powerful as USA. So the one right behind you. <laughs> exactly. That's a pretty powerful logo. Exactly. And, you know, we have to, we have to live up to it. It's a real responsibility. Yeah. But, you know, when, when a, national champion, whether it's Chloe Daggart or whether it's a 55-year-old master's woman that wins her age class, when she shows up in red, white, and blue and can teach kids, there's power there. And, and you know, they're local stars. They're not national stars. We give away, well, give away is the wrong word. We have athletes earn 560 national championship jerseys a year. That's disciplines and age groups all across the sport. Those people are local stars. You know, some of them are Chloe and Kate, and most of them are people we wouldn't recognize in the grocery store, but they're accomplished cyclists. And I want to harness that power and that passion to teach kids to get into this sport. That'll make the community way bigger. That's how I get to a million members. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of BHAG goals. We need big, hairy, audacious goals because I don't want to get a little bigger. I want to get a lot bigger and a lot more welcoming. And the key to that is to go after it and aim for it. We got the talent to do it. Let's talk about talent. That's actually a, a good point. We've, we've dropped Chloe Digert's name a couple of times here on the pod. Um, but uh, she's a defending world champion, medal favorite, 
and just an incredible, incredible competitor. Uh, you've got another one in, in Kate Courtney, um, who is also a defending world champion in mountain biking. Um, uh, a great girl from Marin County. Uh, you know, who would have thought that Marin County could could produce a, a cycling, a mountain biking world champion, right? Um, it's just a great opportunity for the sport to really get behind those two, many others. Um, but really, I, I want to focus real quick just on on the women's team that 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 you'll field in Tokyo this summer. Um, great personalities, obviously incredibly fit um, women, but just really fun backgrounds, great backstories and metal favorites, right? You're not going in um, hoping um, and praying, but uh, expecting um, success. Now, so, you know, you, tell me a little bit more about those girls and what do you think the opportunity is there? But well, maybe put your... P&G hat back on and, and, and tell me, you know, like, boy, you know, aren't these incredible spokespeople and opportunities for, for, for our big, um, you know, brands here in America? You know, I, I think they really are. And, and um, you know, first I'll take the women's pursuit team. They won the world championship. Um, they're defending champs. Chloe's an individual defending champ. And we have a coach, Gary Sutton, uh, one of the best track coaches in the world. He's got about kind of eight women in that short list that I'm very confident that we'll put them on the track in Tokyo and they will perform extremely well. I don't want to put, you know, what color of metal pressure on them, but we have very high hopes. Um, you know, I'll tell you a personal story. Chloe's one of the athletes I've, I've gotten to know a little bit since I've been in the role. And um, my wife and I were in Berlin in March, right before COVID hit uh, at the world championships. And on the individual um, pursuit, Chloe went out at about four o'clock in the afternoon and in a, in a qualifying event, set a world record. You know, that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. She went back three hours later and broke her own world record. So twice wow. in a day. And I, we were having dinner with her about nine o'clock that night. And I was you know, trying to make small talk and trying to understand her. And I said, have you ever done that before? And she looked me deadpan in the eye and say, yep, I've done that. Um, you know, for some people that, that saw the world championships in Amola, Chloe had a horrible crash and luckily she's going to be okay yeah. and she's recovering. But Jim Miller, our head of athletics told me a story. If you watch that clip, you know, that it was an individual time trial. She was crushing the field 35 seconds up. Jim's in her ear telling her, cool it down. You're way ahead. Just get there. He knew very well. She's not wired that way. And yep. she overcooked a turn, had a pretty awful crash. He said he was over the rail and on top of her in about 15 seconds. And the first question she asked him is, coach, am I done for the day? And based on the, what you see in that injury, you knew that, yes, she was yeah. done for the day. Her second, question, her second question was, am I done for good? And he looked her in the eye and said, Chloe, hell no, you're not done for good. And she's not. She'll be back. It's, luckily, it was... Uh, serious, but much less serious than it looked. And she's recovering in Indiana right now. So we got athletes like that. Kate Courtney from Marin County, as you said, uh, she was the defending world champion. She had a tough world championship uh, this year, but she's going to be there. She's an incredibly bright, uh, modern American athlete. She's very social media active. She uh, represents everything good about sport. And I think she's a great uh, spokesperson for cycling in this country. I love the fact that we're yeah. leading with women 
And, um, you know, I think it's a bit of a Title IX benefit that we get right now, that we've got really, really talented uh, young women that are re representing the sport incredibly well, and we'll have men doing the same thing, like Sepp and yeah. Messi did at the Tour de France. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's the thing, right? In, um, in my experience in, in this space, um, you you come in contact with people that you realize, okay, that's, that person's different. That person sees yep. the world differently. They see their place in this world a lot differently. Um, and it's all, you know, incredible. You know, we've, we've made some comparisons of, of Kate Courtney and Michaela Schifrin um, from the ski world. And, and uh, you know, again, not to put too much pressure on Kate, but, um, you know, she, she has every bit the, the personality that could break through. Um, I feel like in cycling, though, um, you know, take take Lance out of the equation, right? Um, I, I feel because he has transcended, of course, um, but I feel like you know, cycling does a good job of building up great cycling stars that people in cycling are completely excited about and name drop and 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 know. Um, but like some of the these other Olympic sports have done, you know, with a with a Michael Phelps or or with a Michaela Schifrin or, or, you know, on down the line, um, you know, what can we do with, with these two incredible stars and, 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 and many others on the team that, that, uh, you know, if we fast forward to Tokyo um, and, and we see, you know, NBC does an incredible job uh, year after year after year of creating overnight superstars. Um, so, you know, wh what are you looking at down the line of like, we know when Tokyo is happening in, in 21, I'm knocking on all the wood in my room right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we know it's happening. You know, what, what do you do now? What do you do in, you know, in, in, in the near future? And then, and then what do you do, um, you know, when that happens to kind of push these, these athletes out there so they can break through because the sport needs it. The yeah, the sport needs it, and I, and I think to some degree, you, know, you mentioned kind of past stars, and I think we've had a bit of a, a bit of a black eye and maybe a bit of tentativeness to really sure. talk about stars. So I think we've had a hand in that, and I think uh, you know the two women we're talking about now, Chloe and Kate, are great examples. There's others, and um, we've got to help those athletes break through. And I think part of it is connecting it to the We Champion mission because we've got to. We've got to serve more than just the athletes. I want little girls to look up to Kate and Chloe and say, mom, can I do that? And I want that answer to be, hell yes, you can. And there's infrastructure to do it. And USA Cycling can help you get there. So I do believe that serving the entry level of the market and then connecting these top athletes, and Kate and I have talked about this. She's done some of this already. You know, She has real passion for getting more girls riding. Uh, and, yeah, and I say girls because young girls, getting them on bikes and realizing that there's a path for them. And so when we have that kind of star alignment, if you will, we got to help them. We got we to gotta give them, you know, the platforms and the partners that can get their message out there. Uh, and Kate's very well supported by sponsors, but it doesn't always come easily to these athletes. They're too dedicated being the athletes. You know, it, it's been clear to me as I've gotten closer you know, most of these athletes are so maniacally focused on their performance. They have very little time for anything else. And sure. we need to make that pretty turnkey and pretty easy for them and do it in a way that doesn't interfere with their training. Yeah, no, and that's what I've seen. You know, a lot of NGBs do this well and USA Cycling is no exception. 
um, of supporting athletes through, uh, obviously you got to put them on the playing field and then, and then they do their thing and, and results that tend to dictate um, a lot of attention and, and fan bases and stardom, what have you. Um, but there's a lot of day to day that NGBs can support with social media and video. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's a totally new ball game, even than it was 10 years ago today about how you can support an athlete and how you can build their profile. Um, you know, just, just through supporting what they're already doing um, uh, on that journey. And people want to make that one-on-one -on -one connection uh, via social media uh, to these stars. Well, I think they do. And I think it's the human interest story that's, that's most powerful. I mean, people see their results and the combination of what we do. And in some cases, their trade teams do, you know, everybody knows what their times and specialties and all that is. They want to know, how'd you get here? You know, yeah. what, what's your story and how'd you did it? And, and uh, we're getting better at it. I don't think it's a core competency at all yet. I think actually skiing's probably one of the best NGBs I've seen in that space. Uh, but we, there's a lot of headroom. And I think, you know, connecting it back to the, the broad market conditions you talked about a minute ago, um, you know, that's way more interesting to, you know, I'll put on my P&G hat or my New Balance hat. I'm much more interested in that every man and every woman connection than the hardcore folks because, you know, they get, they, they get plenty of attention. We need to connect these sports to everyday participants people that just go out and ride with their family on Saturday or people that might compete in a local, you know, 20 mile event or 50 mile event. That's where the power to partners is, is that these athletes can transcend the, the hardcore folks and get to the, the casual folks, uh, the people that just, you know, it's one thing they do, but it's not how they define themselves. And it's not about a logo slap anymore. Right. I mean, no. you know, again, no. putting your new balance hat back on, uh, you know, the, the logo slap is over and, and it's about making these really deeper connections um, and passionate connections to brands through storytelling. And conveniently for the NGB community, um, you, you know, the, the storytelling is, is right there and, it's, and, it's, and they're all incredible, incredible stories um, that you just don't get in your mainstream sports that you see every Sunday or every, you know, whatever day um, that they're competing in arenas or football fields or what have you, right? Like we have some incredibly unique stories that um, are new and fresh, um, but also like we can create that. That's a real true value proposition um, for any company out there, right? That integration of, of your messaging, your brand value that aligns um, with, with the NGB value, which, and, and if the NGB is doing this right, the NGB value is entirely about the athletes. What's good for the athletes, good for the NGB, you know, that's, that's obviously got to be ground zero. Um, and then just building those stories up is, is, is the value proposition, right? It is. And, and, you know, I learned a good kind of hard and long lesson when I was at New Balance about the importance of authenticity we mm -hmm. desperately wanted one of the major marathons and we were boxed out in Boston by Adidas. We couldn't get it. And we started to chase the New York city marathon and the New York city road runners and ASICs had had it for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And, and we, you know, we came at it from every angle and, and we weren't making the progress we thought wanted to. And then we tried to find what was it, what was the true mission of the New York road runners? 
not slapping our logo on the marathon, but really understanding what good were they trying to do. And it led us to where we started supporting all of their secondary and tertiary events first, which at the time ASICS wasn't quite frankly paying as much attention to it because they had the marathon. And, you know, we started with the Brooklyn half and we made it into a neighborhood, a borough festival that happened to have a half marathon tied to it. And we brought in food trucks and bands and all kinds of things for non-runners to do. And the roadrunners, you know, they were worried about the impact they were having on New York City. And we put a free shoe program in for kids. And it was understanding their mission that made that a valuable partnership. And we ended up winning the total sponsorship and taking it for a decade away from ASICs. And it's, I don't, I personally knock on wood, I don't think New Balance will ever use it, lose it because it's so deeply ingrained in what those two organizations are trying to do. And that's how, you know, that's how sponsorship works when you're really mission driven partners, uh, not one company gives another organization money and you get to put your logo on the, on the t-shirts. Uh, you know, yeah. you do still get that, but it's so much deeper. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things I'm most proud about my time at New Balance was able to win that. And we had a great team that led it. And I think that'll be a partner for them forever. That's an, there's an interesting parallel to there, right? With that story and, and, and the NGB movement overall within the USOPC, right? So, so, you know, everybody, again, the general market, not, not only just the fan bases, which is it's totally understandable, um, because the US Team USA, the USOPC, really represents, you know, they, they draw the media rights money. They, they get, you know, the big donation money as well. They really represent the, they exclusively represent the rings, right? Um, Co-exclusively with the NGBs, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, But, uh, you know, like people have this perception that, that the Olympics starts and ends at at the USOPC and and they have, they have a great mission and, 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 you know, we, every NGB has to have a great partnership with the USOPC. And I would put your relationship, you know, right there amongst the top, even within the, the NGB community. Um, but again, but back to this, you know, ability to really put your brand into the Olympic movement on a day-to-day basis. I use this all the time in my, in my pitches. The, the Olympics is great. The USOPC, fantastic organization. Um, the Olympics is 18 days every four years. These sports, these athletes, these stories, they exist 365 days a year, every single year. Um, and, it, and it's really, you know, that is, that it's, it's almost a struggle, interestingly, right? It's a struggle to gain awareness of, of this situation where it always works and where it, where it works really well with, with P&G, in, in my experience, is being able to be a partner of the Olympic movement through the USOPC or the, or the IOC rights, whichever one you're buying and the NGB, right. And that's the situation where you can create a one plus one equals three. And that's, you know, certainly, you know, where I've always started my conversations is, is, is someone that already understands the Olympic movement or already is putting money against it. Um, boy, can we make your money go that much further when you're actually involved um, in the sports? Um, and in the grassroots. And I'm sure that's probably an observation that, that you had when, you know, coming in of, you know, trying to create a better connection between the sport community and the team and the athletes, right. This, you know, deeper, deeper connection there. 
Well, I think I think you get two things that really stand out. If if you do it right, you get a, a real authenticity that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And but the other thing you get is is the continuity. And and I remember the you know this goes back a long time in my career, but I used to run the North American Gillette blade and razor business, and we did a Super Bowl commercial. And there's so much energy that goes into it. I mean, for 10 or 11 months, you're working on it. And there's this big six, seven, eight million dollar number out there just to run it, let alone to make it. And then it happens and you go, oh my God, it's over. And <laughs> five minutes after it, it's one of the you know, one of the most significant buyer remorse feelings I ever remember because I'd had my whole organization working for months and months and months. And then it runs and you know, you use the footage again, but it's not the same. Yeah. You know, here you're talking about integration where that story can be told constantly and it builds and the US, the Olympic events are such incredible coming out parties and great global marketing events, but they end. Now, I like the fact that we're a sport that, you know, in Tokyo, we're going to compete, I think it's every single day. So we got the longevity of the event, but not all of it will be on television in the United States. And, and so you got to find your way through it. But it's more about that ongoing, the road to Tokyo, I think is a more, I think it's a more interesting marketing uh, story together than it is by itself for sure sure and let's end on that you know we've so we've got tokyo postponement um uh we've got the we've got an olympics this summer um again already knocked on every single piece of wood here (laughs) but um uh you know what are you doing on a you know on a on a daily or weekly basis with your with your eye on tokyo what's what's happening at the organization right now um, what are some key, you know, key moments between now and, and when they light the flame in, in late July there um, that we should all be looking out for? Well, I think a couple of things. I, I'm really blessed to have uh, Jim Miller run our elite athletics. And the first thing when, you know, at first uh, the COVID stuff started and things started to cancel and there was a question, I think it was about six weeks, probably before mm-hmm. Tokyo pulled the trigger. And, you know, as soon as it was pulled, Jim's immediate reaction was, how do I make the USA cycling team stronger next summer than they are this summer? And you got to love that. You got to love that kind of competition because instead of, you know, hanging his head and saying, oh my God, it's going to cost us money. And which is all true. His reaction and his coaches were, how do we get stronger? So our coaches have been doing everything they can within the confines of, of, you know, today's limitations on competition uh, and he was very accountable with both the world championships on road and mountain. You know, we had a good performance. We didn't have a great performance, but athletics, as you know, I mean, some days the chips just don't fall your way. And, you know, Chloe had a 35 second lead before she crashed and, but she'll learn from that and she'll come back stronger. And, and all of our teams our, our men's and women's track team are locked up right now in a, in a track in Colorado Springs and, and Gary Sutton is, is coaching the heck out of them to make sure they're ready. My number, you know, we had a pretty big financial challenge. My, our number one priority was no athlete, no American cycling athletes is going to Tokyo and going to have a thought in their head of I'm, I'm less prepared. They're going to be more prepared. And we've got high hopes for performance uh, this summer. I think the IOC and Japan will do everything they can for these games to happen. I think the question is probably physical fans, where and how will they be there and will it be limited and will it be, uh, you know, regulated, but our team's going to be there. They're going to be ready and we're going to bring home some hardware. 
That's great. And again, like all that does is focus the attention as it should on the fact that we can tell stories and yep. we can, and we can integrate these stories. Um, if there aren't fans, right. I mean, these, then all of a sudden this connection via video or the internet or what have you becomes, becomes all that more uh, important um, to, to how people will measure um, their brand lift or their, uh, what's happening um, at the Olympics. So I, I'm, you know, and, and personally and professionally, uh, you know, I would have loved the Olympics to happen last year, but at the same time, we've got a whole nother year to sell in these stories and to sell in these benefits. So it's certainly been uh, beneficial uh, to me on that front. Um, and, you know, I encourage anybody listening or watching to this, to this podcast, give a hard, hard look at, at, uh, at what the Olympics can be this summer um, and certainly what the NGB community can do um, for your brand. So, and that's just, you know, the benefits, right, Rob, of, of, of the importance of storytelling and the importance of, of being able to connect people uh, and connect their brand um, to these incredible stories that will happen in Tokyo this summer. Uh, we will have an Olympics, and if we don't have fans, it just becomes all that more important on being, being able to make those um, connections other ways. Um, and that's where I think the NGBs will, will really um, be incredible. So, so Rob, it's been an incredible conversation, really been, really been fun. And, and I look forward to seeing you out there on the bike. It sounds great. And I want to you know, thank the Sports Lifestyle Network, too, for giving us a chance to talk today. And uh, we're going to do well. And, and uh, if you want any more information, just go to usacycling.org and it'll all be there. But thank you. Thank you to our guests and sponsors. Without them, there would be no Sport Lifestyle Network. If you're listening via Apple Podcast or Spotify, be sure to rate us and subscribe. For more podcasts and to sign up for the newsletter, go to sportlifestylenetwork.com. Again, sportlifestylenetwork.com. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it.